All right, good morning again. <clears throat> I, invite you to I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy, not Mark, 1 Timothy. Taking a short little break from Mark, I want to do a couple sermons dealing with God's household. You know, 1 Timothy is, is, a, is a wonderful book. And it would be great to actually preach through it from start to finish, but what's actually happening is every, every several months we go to, go to 1 Timothy and, and find a text there that's really helpful for us and walk through it. So we're kind of going through 1 Timothy uh, over, the, over, over a course of years, uh, but we're going we're gonna to get through all of it eventually. 1 Timothy, I'm going to read a large section. I'm going to read from chapter 2, verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 6, because I want us to see the, the, the big picture of life in God's household. But I do want to mention one thing, um, especially for those of you who've, who've been, been uh, part of South Paris Baptist Church for a number of years, is that part of the thinking behind this two-part series is how we as a church family need to rediscover the biblical ministry of, of deacons. And so, uh, deacons is, is part of the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. And then next Sunday, um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 6, which is another really helpful passage on understanding the role of deacons in the life of the church. So, it's, it's not going to seem like I'm zeroing in on that issue in these sermons, especially the first one, but I want you to understand that what we're trying to do here is, is to lay a biblical and theological foundation to understand how deacons fit into life in God's household. So let me go ahead and read 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 6. Like I said, we're taking a big picture view this morning, and these 37 verses will really help us. God's Word says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. 
The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed." This is God's holy word, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that you breathed out words, faithful words, reliable words, life-giving words, in order that we might know you and that we might walk in your ways and that we might be your faithful representatives in this world. And Father, I pray that this particular passage would be impressed upon our hearts this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us to see what we ought to see so that we might walk in your ways. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I want to I share with you eight reflections on life in God's household from this passage. Now, I'm not, I'm not like starting at the beginning of the passage and going through one verse after another, but rather taking a big picture view, so I'll be jumping around a little bit. Number one, faithful participants in God's household understand that it is 
God's household. And therefore, God is the one who arranges and orders life within the household. Look at verse uh, 15 in chapter 3, where we are told that this is the household of God, that the, the church belongs to the living God. It is His household. It is His family. And since it is God's household, we are not free to make things up as we go along. Because it is God's household, there is an ought. There, there are household guidelines. There's a standard of conduct. That's why Paul says that you may know how one ought to behave. There's an ought. There's a should. We need to know what God's expectations are for His household. And then trusting Him, we need to walk in accordance with His design. So we need to understand that it is God's household. And we, we are stewards. We're not, the, we're not the authors. We're not the developers. We are stewards. We are trustees who need to put into effect God's will. Reflection number two. Faithful participants in God's household treasure the household's foundational message, which is, which is highlighted in chapter 3, verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then what we have is a little, a little creed, a little summary of faith. He was manifested in the flesh, referring, referring to the fact that God's Son became a man and dwelt among us. And what did He do while in the flesh? Of course, He lived a perfect life. But if you go back to chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, we get another snapshot of the household's foundational message. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all. Having a body and having lived a perfect and righteous life, Jesus offered Himself as a sacrifice for sin. But the, His death was not the end of the story. He was not only manifested in the flesh, He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was raised from the dead and shown to be the, the sinless Son of God and Savior of the world. And then, having been raised from the dead and vindicated, He was seen, it says seen by angels. This word that is translated angels can refer to, it, it really means messengers. It could refer to angelic messengers. It could refer to human messengers. Perhaps both are in view, but the risen Christ was seen, and then the, the, the human preachers that He appointed then went forth and proclaimed the gospel. They, those who had borne witness to His death and resurrection went and preached the gospel among the nations, and He was believed on in the world. And many put their faith in Jesus and became His disciples. And finally, He was taken up in glory. Now, if you think about the order here, we might think that the order should have been He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen, seen by angels, and then taken up in glory. But 
the ascension of Jesus, his return to glory at the right hand of the Father is put last, probably for emphasis, that the one who, who, who descended and the one who was manifested in the flesh is now seated and exalted at the right hand of God. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. When we understand the household's foundational message, then we know and take to heart the fact that God's household is not for high achievers. We haven't become part of God's household, if, if you are part of God's household, we haven't become part of God's household because we were great, because we were wonderful, because we accomplished something. That's not how it works. What did Paul say in chapter 1, verse 15? Here's another statement of the household's foundational message. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This foundational message is good news for sinners. God's household is populated by recovering sinners. We, 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 we do not... We do not boast in any righteousness of our own, but we put our faith in Christ and we continue to learn and grow in Him as humble followers. Reflection number three. Faithful participants in God's household embrace the two priorities of word ministry and prayer ministry. Word and prayer. You, let, let's start with prayer. A number of months ago, we actually looked in depth at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and I'm not looking to do that now, but I just want you to remember at the beginning of chapter 2 that, 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 that God calls us, His people, as His household to be actively involved in prayer, right? Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. And then in verse, in verse 8, he specifically says that I desire then that in every place the men should pray. So, so corporate worship, life in God's households, we're gathered together as God's people. One of the main things that we do is prayer. And then the other uh, the other priority in terms of ministry is the ministry of the Word. And we see that throughout throughout these chapters. The very, fact that, the very fact that Paul is writing these instructions is word ministry. He's giving instruction to Timothy so that Timothy can pass that instruction on to the churches in Ephesus. You also see the emphasis on word ministry in verse 6 of chapter 4. If you put these things before the brothers. You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. And then glance down at chapter 4, verse 11. Command and teach these things. And then after another set of instructions, look at chapter 5, verse 7. Command these things as well. And then after another set of instructions in chapter 6, at the end of verse 2, teach and urge these things. Listen. What we're doing here is not creative entertainment. Uh, we're, we're, not, 
we're not here to run slick programs. We're not, we're not here for the bells and the whistles, pomp and circumstance, glitz and glamour. We're not trying to excite you. In fact, I really appreciate the lesson that I learned from somebody else, namely, that we, we want our worship of God to be such that if God isn't working in your life, you wouldn't want to be here. In other words, we're not trying to, we're not trying to cater to your flesh. We're not trying to excite your natural humanity, okay? We, we are here to do God's business. We are here to proclaim His Word, to hear from Him, and we're, and we're here to bring our hearts together before Him in prayer. That's the, that's the, that's the heart this thing is, this earpiece is having a little trouble with it this morning. Sorry if that's distracting. It's distracting me and I'm distracting you. Chapter 4, verse 5, God's gifts are made holy by the Word of God in prayer. In fact, in next week's passage, you'll see the, the, the reason that the apostles felt the need to delegate the responsibility of, of caring for widows and the food distribution to widows, it's not because the food distribution was not important, it was because their priority was the ministry of the Word and prayer. And so as participants in God's household, we need to affirm and uphold those two priorities. Number four, the fourth reflection. Faithful participants in God's household pursue God's design for manhood and womanhood. Talk about being out of step with 21st century culture. Apparently, it was somewhat out of step with 1st century culture in Ephesus because Paul felt the need to, uh, to give this instruction. But I want you to notice something. In chapter 2, when, when uh, in verse 5, when Paul says there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, he actually uses the generic word for for a human being. It, it, could be, it could be legitimately translated, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and humanity, the human Christ Jesus. That would be a legitimate translation of that, of that instruction. But when he gets to verse 8, when Paul gets to verse 8, he, he uses different words. He refers specifically to men, not to, human, not to humanity in general, but to men. And then he refers specifically to women. And what becomes very clear is that God's design is for men to take the lead. You see, what, what, our, what people in our culture want to do, which flows right out of the sinful nature, is that we want to do what we want to do. We want to we do what feels right to us. We want to we make things up and, and then have, have God stamp His approval upon it. But what our, our heart attitude should be is that we want to understand and, and appreciate and put into practice what God's design is for His people. And He clearly wants men to take the lead in prayer, 
verse 8, and he also wants men to take the lead in terms of teaching and shepherding the flock of God. He says in verse uh, 12 of chapter 2, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, what's interesting is uh, a lot of people uh, try to you know, get, a, get around the implications of this instruction, and they'll, they'll, they'll say something like, well, Paul was just responding to a, a very specific problem at Ephesus, and really he's just, this is just a cultural issue. It's not something that God intends for all of His people in every time and place. But that's a very, that's a very, poor, that's a very poor argument because Paul gives the foundational reason for his instruction in verse 13 has nothing to do with the passing fads of culture, and it doesn't even have anything to do with the fall initially, although he brings in the fall in verse, the fall into sin in verse 14. But in verse 13, Paul understands that, that God's, God's creation design in, in forming Adam first and then secondly Eve wasn't just random. Like I'm going to make person one and person two and then we can, we can you know, interchange them as we like. It's not like that. There, there, was, there was design and he's creating Adam first. Adam is the head. Adam is the leader. Adam is the initiator. Adam is the protector. And then he creates Eve to come alongside of him as his helper who will work with him to carry out God's purpose. And then what happened in the fall is that God's, God's design for man and woman got reversed in the fall, right? Man is supposed to take the lead and the woman is supposed to follow. And what happened in the fall is that Satan came to the woman and deceived her. She took the lead. Adam followed her into sin and humanity fell. Now, that's not to shift blame onto the woman. Adam was asleep at the wheel. In another passage, Paul lays responsibility for humanity's plunge into sin on Adam because he was the head. And he, he, should, have, he should have stepped up and, and crushed the head of the snake. But he didn't. But the point is, is that there's design. There's design in God's family as we're being restored in the image of God. There's design for, for men to take the lead and for women to follow. And, and, that, and that brings us directly into the instruction at the beginning of chapter 3 where we see that men are supposed to take the lead in the church with godly men serving as, as overseers or as elders. And we also see in the qualifications for overseers and deacons that it's obvious that the men should also be taking lead in the home to manage their own households well. So as a, as a, as a church, we need to be really diligent to put into, a, put into practice God's design for men as men and for women as women. 
Let's go to uh, the, fifth, the fifth reflection. Faithful participants in God's household put a premium on godly character and the beautiful relationships that flow from it. Don't you just see how emphasis on godly character just permeates this passage? It's all over the place. I mean, chapter 2, verse 2, godly and dignified. Chapter 2, verse 8, the men who are praying, they're they should be lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Remember what, remember what we learned in Mark chapter 11 when Jesus was, was teaching us what it means to be a, a community of prayer? Is that not only should we be praying, uh, expecting that God will answer us, but that if we are praying and we we have something against someone, we, we need to make sure that we are walking in forgiveness. If, if, if our relationships are out of order, if our relationships are broken, then our prayers don't make it past the ceiling. If you go on, in, in terms of character, chapter 2, verse 9, modesty and self-control. Verse 10, godliness and good works. Chapter, uh, uh, verse 15, faith and love and holiness with self-control. And then you have the qualifications for overseers and deacons. Above reproach, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Chapter 3, verse 8. Dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, blameless, dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful, in all things. Character is more important than competence. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, the fruit of the Spirit is more important than the gifts of the Spirit. Spiritual health is more important than ministry productivity. Sometimes, sometimes we get it all wrong. We, we, we want to we wanna make a big ministry splash, right? We want to succeed. We want to grow. We want to get stuff done. We don't want to drop the ball on anything. And so we, we run people, we run people, we run people. And we leave behind their hearts. And we leave behind their life. And we leave behind their family. And then we wonder why we get to a point where it all implodes. It all implodes because we got things out of, out of whack. South Paris Baptist Church must be a safe place for God's people to slow down and learn to abide in Jesus and learn to love one another and learn to draw near to God and to pursue holiness and not to be preoccupied with ministry productivity. If we're, if, we're, if we're leaning in to the Lord and abiding in Him and trusting Him, then He will produce the good fruit that He desires in His own time. Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 12. This is Paul speaking to Timothy. It's also a good application uh, to the, to the uh, elders of the church also. But Paul says, let no one despise you for your youth but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, 
in purity. An old pastor, by old I mean like maybe a couple hundred years ago, said, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. Competence, gifting, leadership skills, people smarts, all of those things are, are valuable in their place. But there, there, there's no greater gift that a spiritual leader can give to the people that he's influencing than his own heart for God, his own holiness, his own pursuit of growing in godly character. Reflection number six. Faithful participants in God's household esteem the ministries of elders and deacons. Now, I use, I use the phrase elders, okay? The word that occurs in chapter 3, verse 1 is overseer. I'm not going to take time to do this, but I will give you the Bible references. Um, if we looked at Acts 20, 28, and Titus 1, 5 to 9, and 1 Peter 5, 1 to 4, I could show you with confidence that elders and overseers and pastors are three different ways of describing the same people, okay, the, the, same, the same office. So I, I'm using the word elders because we're, we're very familiar with that. In fact, Paul uses that word in chapter 5, verse 17, where he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. That's, that's, that's what I am. I'm, I'm, an, I'm an elder who labors in preaching and teaching, but I'm not the only elder, which is a good thing, because when you look through the New Testament, you consistently see that, that, that churches are, are led by a plurality or a team of elders. What do elders do? Well, elders do, one clue is in chapter 2, verse 12. They are to teach and exercise authority over the whole congregation. That's, a, that's an implication of, chap, of chapter 2, verse 12, as it leads into chapter 3. Elders, they oversee, or in terms of verse 5, they manage, they care for, or chapter 5, verse 17, they rule, or one translation says, direct the affairs of. We're try, trying to, to shepherd and, and shape and influence the whole congregation in following faithfully following the ways of the Lord. And a significant aspect of that is teaching. Elders must be able to teach. The, the, the same kinds of things that Timothy is teaching the congregations, the elders need to take that and continue to teach their congregations to be faithful to the Lord. And I want you to understand how important character is in terms of the ministry role of elders. It's, it's important not only because we are to set an example for the flock. It's also important because you, you, know, you, have, to, you have to work with people a lot. You, you, have to, you have to co-labor with other people in ministry, and you have to deal with, with issues and difficulties that arise in the congregation. If, if, you're, if, you're, if your heart is not settled before the Lord, you're not 
trusting him and learning to lean on him and abide in his peace and treat people gently and graciously, then you'll make a terrible elder and you'll hurt a lot of people. It's so sad, you know, you hear about, you hear about, often it's pastors of big churches, this doesn't always have to be the case, but pastors of big churches or leaders of big ministries and, and you hear about what seems to be sometimes authoritarian leadership and, and pressuring and, and bullying and, and, and that that has no place in God's household, which is why it's so important for elders to, to have and exhibit godly character. Deacons are, are mentioned next, and honestly, the Bible doesn't say a lot about what deacons are supposed to do. I, uh, I accept this understanding. It's hardly original with me. I'm just passing it along. But I th- and and you'll, you'll see this more next week in the Acts chapter 6 passage. But I think it's safe to say that deacons assist the elders by carrying out specific delegated tasks which frees the elders to focus on teaching and praying and shepherding the whole flock. And so deacons are valuable. They too must exhibit good character. If you look at verse 11, there's a very strange verse in the middle of the uh, instructions on deacons. It says, their wives likewise. Now, I like the English Standard Version. That's why I use it. I wish they hadn't translated it that way because they translated it with an interpretation. The interpretation is, 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 is plausible, but literally, the, it just says, it just really just means women likewise. There's no possessive pronoun like there in the original Greek. It's women likewise. And then you have to kind of, some of your translations probably say that. I think that's a better translation. And then you can debate whether are, are these women who are deacons? Are these women who are deaconesses, who are associated with the deacons? Are these women who are wives of the deacons? You can probably make an argument for any of those. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know. The biblical principle from chapter 2, verse 12, that a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man means that a woman must not serve as an elder or as a pastor. But that doesn't necessarily rule out a woman serving as a, as a deacon or as a deaconess. So just keep that in mind. Number seven. <clears throat> Reflection number seven. Faithful participants in God's household place high value on the believer's family life. This is really important. Chapter 4, verse 3. False teachers, one of the things they do is they forbid marriage, but marriage is good. It's God's design. It's God's gift. We're to receive it with thanksgiving. Childbearing. Chapter 2, verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. That's an interesting phrase. Remember, we have been saved. If we're a believer, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And, and it's a package deal. We have been justified and forgiven and adopted into God's family, and we are being sanctified, we are being made holy, we are growing in grace, and we will be resurrected 
vindicated and glorified with Jesus on the last day. It's a package deal. You can't, you can't like, pick one of the three. So, so when, it, when the Bible says things like, such, such and such people will be saved, it means th- those who are on the path of obedience, those, those who are on the path of holiness, they have been saved, they've been rescued out of their sins, they've been placed on the path of obedience, that path of obedience reflects the fact that they have been saved, and it anticipates the fact that they will be saved, and one implication of that is, as, 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 a, as a woman, stay in your lane. Same thing for men. Stay in your lane. She will be saved through childbearing. One, one commentator put it simply, a woman will, will be saved by being on the path of being a godly woman. Godly woman. Okay? The, the, the decisive issue isn't the fact, the physical fact of having children or the quantity of children. The, the decisive issue is you're seeking to be a godly woman continuing in faith and love and holiness with self-control. In, in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, we see how important it is that, a, that an elder manage his own household and children well. It has been well said that elders are not exceptional Christians, they are exemplary Christians. And it kind of sets an example for what the whole flock ought to be. You see the same thing with deacons in verse 12, that they ought to be faithful husbands and manage their children and their own households well. If you go over to chapter 5, verse 4, it says, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. You you have to love your family. Don't throw yourself into the church family and love the church family while you're neglecting your own family. Every believer should prioritize gathering with God's people for worship, as we do on Sunday morning. But beyond that, make sure you are first of all prioritizing teaching and shepherding and good character and growth in your home. And that's the way that we should think. We, again, we don't want people to burn themselves out in serving the church while their household's falling apart. We want to we say to you, love your family. Do whatever you got to do, and we will stand with you to help you grow. We want, we want a strong household, the church, and we want strong households, families. We want spirit-empowered worship, and we want spirit-empowered marriages. We want elders shepherding the flock, and we want godly fathers shepherding their families. We want healthy families feeding into a healthy church, and we want a healthy church feeding back into healthy families. You can see that in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, where we get a portrait of a godly woman, where her own family ends and where her ministry to the church and wider Christian community begins. It's hard, it's hard to see because it's all interrelated. 
Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Beautiful. Finally, reflection number eight. Faithful participants in God's household know that all these things are vital to being a pillar and buttress of the truth. Chapter 3, verse 15. We're the household of God. We are the church of the living God. And what is the church? One of the, one of the job descriptions of the church is to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. We are to We are to hold up the truth and make it clear and make it visible and make it compelling. And in order to do that, it's not enough to simply say the right words. Holding up the truth doesn't just mean speaking truth. For we're seeing here that that it has to get into our conduct, into our character, into our relationships, into our priorities. People should be able to look in on the church and they see they don't just proclaim the truth. They, they practice the truth. They don't, just, they don't just explain the truth. They embody it in their lives. They adorn the gospel with godly Lives. You see that in chapter 4, verse 16, where Paul tells Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. It's not enough to get the doctrine right. You've got to get the life right, the heart right, the life right, the relationships right, the household right. See? You've got to get the microphone right. Second half of verse 16, okay? Persist in this, paying attention to your life and your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save. That's, that's the future aspect again. You will save both yourself and your hearers. And in so doing, we will offer a compelling witness and testimony to our world. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would energize sanctify, transform us into faithful participants in your household. Where there needs to be correction, bring correction. Where there needs to be encouragement, bring encouragement. Where there needs to be strengthening, bring strengthening. And help all of us to encourage each other and to help each other in a way that reflects your priorities for your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.